At Truist Leadership Institute, we feel it's important to equip leaders with ways to lead more inclusively. While it has been months since the death of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, the fight for social justice isn't over. No longer can we leave the discussions at home. What's happening in the world around us impacts how we work and how we lead. Now, more than ever, leaders are being looked at by their teams to recognize what's happening and engage. And they're being asked to lead differently, more inclusively. But what happens if a leader doesn't feel equipped to have these conversations, or maybe doesn't know where to start? To help, we'll be featuring episodes on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, starting with this episode. We'll address race and how leaders can have meaningful conversations on the topic. Now, a little bit of a warning. You may have feelings of discomfort. That's okay. Discomfort means you care. It means you feel something. It means growth. We're so proud that our first episode on this topic is featuring Scott Horton, owner of Delta Concepts, who's dedicated his life's work to helping organizations and leaders understand and manage unconscious bias. He will be interviewed by Charlene McNeil, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader and head of the Business Resource Group Strategy Enablement at Truist. Scott will be sharing his own personal journey around the topic of race and how he's had to lead differently to be more intentional with inclusion. You'll hear him be vulnerable, and you'll hear how he's turned his feelings of discomfort into actions for change. Join us, lean in, learn, and grow. Hello, my name is Charlene McNeil, and I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion segment leader and the head of our business resource group strategy enablement team here at Truist. I have the opportunity to help drive our diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and initiatives deeper into the Truist organization, as well as have the governance and oversight of our eight business resource groups, which also help us to deliver on our purpose of building better lives and communities for our teammates for our clients and our stakeholders. I'm here today with a friend of mine, Scott Horton, who is the owner of Delta Concepts Incorporated. He is one of the diverse suppliers that we are currently using to help us educate our leaders on understanding and mitigating unconscious bias. I believe I've known Scott for about four years now. And so Scott, it's great to have you. Good morning. Yeah, thank you, Charlene. It's it's wonderful to be a guest on the podcast, and I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I've had a lot of opportunity over the past several months to really engage teammates and leaders on the topic of race. Uh, many of the conversations that we have held have been very, very difficult, um, as I've had to deal with a lot of silence, uh, especially at the uh, beginning of the calls. Um, and that silence has been from both whites and ethnically diverse teammates. Um, I've witnessed the range of emotion once folks do start to talk and just really wanted to have a conversation with you today about why it's so hard to talk about race. Well, I mean, if I am being completely candid and transparent, I've been I've been a little bit nervous about this uh, podcast. Um, it started late yesterday afternoon. Um, and definitely when I woke up today and I have been doing 
um, diversity and inclusion education for 25 years. So I always give my, you know, my, I give grace and compassion to anybody who is nervous about it and who is a little bit tentative about it because I, I share some of those same feelings. So for me to tell you why I think that is, of course, it's only one point of view from a, um, you know, from a 58 year old um, white guy who grew up in the 60s and 70s in Pennsylvania. We talk in the training that we do for Truist that we're a product of our background, we're a product of our upbringing, our, our enculturation, all the messages we've gotten. Um, a lot of us, uh, a lot of white folks don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it because it brings up such a range of messy, you know, negative feelings. Um, and not, we don't like discomfort and white folks haven't had to have discomfort around this topic because we, you know, we have, we have a different um, path in the world than our African-American and brown friends. So that's just my first take at it, Charlene. I want to hear your reaction to that, but we, we don't, it's hard to talk about because we're nervous that we're going to say the wrong thing. We're nervous that we're going to put our foot in it. We're nervous we're going to offend someone. We're, we're frustrated that we've been talking about it for a long time and nothing seems to change. Um, yeah, I'm probably ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm so, um, I'm, I'm getting increasingly concerned that this moment in time that we've had this year, this, this incredible season of the Black Lives Matters movement and more and more people from across the spectrum of differences that have rallied to say things need to change, we need a, a, a stronger call to action, that I think we have a really short attention span. <laughs> I, 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 I get fearful that the moment, the moment is passing, um, you know, because we, it's hard, we get, we get fatigued. So that's, that's uh, more than what you, you asked for maybe, but I'm curious just what your, you know, reaction is to any of that. Um, first of all, thank you for sharing your vulnerability. Um, and, you know, that I think is, probably something that we need to see and hear more of um, as folks begin to um, unpack this topic. Um, you have, you know, people would say, well, Scott, you've dedicated your life's work to, to inclusion. You know, I know the work has evolved um, since you started. Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey? Um, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm an accidental CEO of a company that is um, touching thousands of lives every month with training and education around how to become more tuned in to how we see the world through biased lenses. And more importantly, even than that, how to disrupt it in decision-making, especially for managers. So that, that, that absolute, uh, that, that accidental CEO um, is is kind of a, a a story that I could go into at another time. My personal evolution. I, I grew up, as I said, in the '60s and '70s in Pennsylvania with a dad who could. I some of you know this that are listening to the call. If you've been in our classes, I've always compared him to the Archie Bunker character in All in the Family. He vocally, verbally, 
um, slammed anybody who wasn't like him. And that's the nicest way I can say that. So I grew up in a household that didn't appreciate or respect people that are different. And my mom went along for the ride. You know, she, she was a product of her generation and didn't challenge him, even if she thought different thoughts. And um, I lived in a neighborhood that was, everyone was white middle-class, mostly Protestant in central Pennsylvania. I went to an all-white high school. I um, uh, went to a mostly white college, went to Ohio State to graduate school, started to interact with more cultures there. But I, I was thinking about it the other day, Charlene, that I didn't have a significant, deep uh, friendship with a person of color, with a black person, until I was almost 35 years old. And that was when I was wow. doing diversity training at um, IBM and was paired with large, mostly black women that worked for IBM to deliver diversity training. And it wasn't until deep, significant relationship with these black women that I know that my filters, my lenses, my view of the world started to change little by little by little. It's not a, it's not a instant recognition of how their lives have differed from mine. It was a gradual process over the last 25 years of now having relationships, significant deep friendships with people who are different, especially African-Americans. And, uh, you know, it would be so cool if every one of my white friends could instantly recognize how white being white has benefited them and how they haven't had to deal with things that they're, that my, that our black colleagues and friends have had. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I know that it's not an instant process because I know how long it took me to evolve to that point. I tell a story in our training, Charlene, I don't know if you've even heard this story, but you know, my team is now we're up to 11 people. I'm proud to say that they're extremely talented and they're also incredibly representative of the population. Other than we don't have any um, millennials or Gen Xers and I'm working on changing that. It's a pretty old, older team. But um, we got together in Fort Lauderdale in 2019 and uh, um, Kara, who runs our back office, ran a um, utilization report for me for 2018. And it showed how many gigs I had assigned to those 11 trainers. And it was clear that most of the assignments went to men, white folks, and gay folks on the team. The least amount of assignments in 2018 went to brown and black folks, to women, and to straight people. So just divulging, you know, nothing that I'm, I'm worried about divulging. I'm an out gay man, I'm white and I'm a guy. And so in our training, we talk about, um, this, this ongoing journey that we have to be on if we want to get better as a team, as an organization, as a culture. And here I am leading an unconscious bias training firm and my unconscious biases affected how I assigned work, which translates into their livelihood. So I started the meeting with that um, report and promised that I was going to consciously be more inclusive in the way I assign the work. So I, I'm sharing that story to say, yeah, I've evolved and I'm not even close to being the, the true champion that we're trying to get truest managers to be. <laughs> and, and this is my work. This is my life. This is my field. So I don't want to brag on myself because I'm a work in progress. I'm, I'm constantly you know, being 
catching myself and being caught in the act of my programming from those 20 years of living with my dad in that community I told you about impacting the way I see the world. So, Scott, was that incident the catalyst for your change or for you um, to be able to see this differently? I think our, uh, it would be helpful to our audience to really understood what helped you to, to shift. Well, I'll tell you that what that incident did, what that story did, of course, like it doesn't, I, I hope you, you're catching what I'm saying, that I'm a well-intentioned person. I'm, these are all things that I announce to myself and to the world. I'm a well-intentioned person. Um, I'm a, a, a good person. I try to practice spiritual principles about whatever you put out comes back to you. I believe in the golden rule. I try to be generous with my time and my money. And I try to support um, organizations that need my money and support. And I'm a product of my upbringing and my programming. And what that story reveals is that I can lead a company that is dedicated to trying to mitigate bias and make the workplace better for everybody, increase productivity and profitability and engagement. And the data is what showed me that I, of course, I'm a biased person. <laughs> so my intentions and my unconscious biases live in the same brain and it takes systems. It takes somebody showing you your blind spot often for a well-intentioned purpose person to recognize that we have biases. So I led a virtual workshop yesterday and a well-intentioned military veteran who is now a leader in an Atlanta-based company, he, he, he gave that old, to me, an old chestnut of a story to say, I was, and, and I respect military veterans and people serving in the military immensely. Um, he said, when you're in the military, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, brown, he, uh, yellow. He used that word, he throws in green and red, which is such a weird thing to say. Um, he's like, you you just need a talented person beside you that's willing to have your back and willing to go into battle with you. And that's the way I run my business here. The most talented person gets the job. I don't think about skin color and and we had just gone through the research of how unconscious bias affects decision making for gender, for race, the Harvard resume study, the you know all the studies in your program. And I, I was like, yeah, we're well-intentioned and we make biased decisions unconsciously. So I don't know if that answered your question. That's, that story that I told has made me, in, because my clients are telling me, it's made me a more effective facilitator, speaker, and presenter because if I'm standing above people trying to tell them how they should be, um, it's not effective. I'm not a preacher. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not even a teacher. I'm a facilitator. But if I, can share, if I can share that story, then there's a better crack, a chance that a crack is going to happen in the veneer of leaders to say, whoa, if that could happen to him, how is it happening? Not can it happen. How is it happening? in our decision-making about people of color, women, every other population that we're working with. So it that's, was a significant moment, yeah. That's a great point, Scott. So as leaders, what questions should we be asking ourselves? Well, I think the, you know, the, I said to that group yesterday is, so I, I'm, I'm building back on my story again, Charlene, that 
if you had asked me, am I equitable in how I treat my team? I would have said, uh, absolutely. This is what I do for a living. It wasn't until Kara ran a report that I didn't ask for <laughs> and put the data in my face. So what I said to the group yesterday is, you know, the the best, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, sometimes I think, Charlene, if the only, what is that expression? If the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I tend to always bring it back to unconscious bias because that's what I understand best. I can apply everything I know about that to almost everything that's going on in our, in our workforces and our culture. And so I told them the story that the best synonym for unconscious bias is blind spot. And um, my friend Brad, who's on our team, uh, uses the word scotoma, which is the, the scientific word for that spot in your vision where you lose vision when you're driving or when you take your thumb and take it around to the side of your head and you can no longer see your thumb. And I said, so, you know, cars have come up with blind spot detectors. I have that in my car and I've become dependent on it. It's so helpful that when I'm renting a car, in another city, if it doesn't have blind spot detection, I'm just sliding over into a lane and getting honked at. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that. Um, and so what I told them is the leader can and should be asking this decision that I'm getting ready to make or this staff meeting that I'm getting ready to run. How can I show up as a more inclusive leader? How can I disrupt inevitable patterns of bias that are probably going to be in my decision-making because all humans have bias. All humans, if they're not consciously slowing down, are going to be sliding into automatic pilot, which is where bias shows up. So what I that's a long-winded way of saying, I said, the questions that you might ask yourself are important, but unless you're a leader who is willing to enable your team and your colleagues and your direct manager to give you feedback on your blind spots, let tell them, I want you to be my blind spot detectors. Guess what? They know what your blind spots are. They've seen you in action. They, they, they want you to succeed, let's hope. So, so if, a, if a leader, this is tough, but if a leader creates a safe environment, a non-retribution um, non environment, for people to give them feedback. To me, like Kara, Kara gave me unintentional feedback when she gave me that report. She didn't. She wasn't telling me I was a bad person. She just thought it would be helpful for me to see utilization. So what if I enabled people on my team to give me that feedback? What if I said, I crave it, I want it, I need it. But sadly, you know, we always say feedback's a gift, but sometimes it's like, I don't like that gift. <laughs> Does it have a gift a return receipt? Because <laughs> it doesn't feel good to be told that I have uh, that I have a blind spot or that I did something that hurt other people unintentionally. Even so, so so what is our role as leaders in this conversation around race? Well, I sometimes I push that back to people like yourself. I'll take a stab at it, but I push it back to people like you who are in the in the organization. I haven't. I haven't managed a team, uh, a traditional team in a traditional organization for 25 years. And so what we've started doing in our workshops with Truist and our other clients is we've started asking in an activity we do called unpacking our knapsack. We start asking people to raise their hand beside their video tile um, on that variety of statements that we use that you're familiar with, Charlene. We've, we've started asking them, raise your hand if you feel comfortable 
engaging your teammates in conversations about social justice, racial inequity, the Black Lives Matters movement, um, et cetera. There's a few other. And I'm kind of blown away that 90% of any client, the managers are raising their hands because I have a perception <laughs> that if I double clicked on that a little bit, that I might find out that people might be you know, posing for the camera a little bit because the HR director is on the call or their manager. So my, my answer to your question is, I think that we, if we're, if we're a white manager, which many managers are in organizations, that the, the work is on us, not on our, our colleagues of color. Um, I, I ask managers who say they care about this, what have you read? that's helped you to understand this more. What have you watched? I've stopped reading. I'm embarrassed to say I've stopped reading as much as I used to, but I'm a documentary guy. So I ask, have you watched Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th? Do, could you explain that as an example of systemic racism? Because until you start to unpack the how the system has been set up the way it is, you can't actually impact the systems that are set up in your teams, in your organizations, in the in your culture. Um, so I'm, I might be a little off off kilter, but I did another um, similar podcast like this two weeks ago, and on the call, I suddenly remembered um, when I was working with Roosevelt Thomas here in Atlanta that he was a student of Edgar Schein at MIT, and Edgar Schein was a culture. Um, scientist. He did uh, did a white paper back in, I think, uh, early '80s about culture. And Charlene, if you if you've heard of maybe you know Edgar Schein, but he compared culture. So this would be the culture of um, a country, the culture of a, an organization like Truist or IBM, where I worked for many years. He compared it to a tree, and it was the best analogy that I've ever heard to be able to explain to clients when I was working with them that if culture is a tree, think about when you are walking on the ground in a beautiful forest, you don't see the roots. You're not even consciously aware that the roots of the tree are there. You are looking at that solid trunk. You're looking up. If it's a beautiful oak tree, you're looking up at that canopy of branches and leaves. And, um, that that's what's happening in our in our United States. We have a 400 year deep rooted history around race and color, and um, I'm not great at expanding that beyond black and white because we're in kind of a black and white moment. Even though, of course, all ethnicities that aren't white experience bias and discrimination. Um, and so what I was sharing on that podcast was that Shine said that so much of our organizational effort is up in the branches. We're, we're trimming the branches. We're removing that program. We're, we're trying to embed a new program to change the culture. And the, 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 the ground of the forest is riddled with flavor of the month. <laughs> you know, we, we, we all have been through the 40 flavors of the month, depending on how many months we've been in the company. And he said that that was because you can't graft an oak branch onto a cherry tree, or maybe he did it in reverse. You can't graft a, a cherry branch onto an oak tree. And so, I don't know, I'm going to a little bit, Charlene, but what I'm trying to say is 
I think at this moment in time, as frustrating it is, is what I'm going to say, we have to have tough conversations. We have to keep learning and growing. And most of that is up in the branches because if we can't get down under the, under the um, ground and dig out the roots, excavate the roots, plant some new roots, that's hard to do. We don't have a prayer of, of kind of moving this, this, this challenge that we're dealing with forward. Scott, what will be your best advice to help our leaders um, spark these important conversations with our teams? Yeah, so let me think. Um, I think the first would be to model what I did and to say, I'm nervous about this sometimes. Sometimes I think I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I'm an ally. I want to make a difference. I want to do better, be better, and make this a better organization. So kind of proclaim that in, in words that are comfortable for you, whatever that sounds like. Um, you're not a savior. You can't be a savior. All you can be is a um, facilitator, a, a someone who can listen. Um, don't be upset. You know, I don't know if the window of time, you know, has has lapsed for the courageous conversations. I don't think so because you're still leading some of those in the bank, those courageous conversations on race. But if uh, a person of color on my team doesn't want to talk about it, don't judge them as being uh, anything other than they don't want to talk about it. I, I shared the other day that if I walk up to a, a, a African-American colleague in July of this past summer and say, hey, how are you doing with all this? It, it, I guess it must really be tough for you and your family to be seeing what's going on in the news with George Floyd and with Ahmet Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. And I said the other day, I go, if you, if that's the most significant conversation you've ever had with that person, shame on you because you can't begin to build trust and dialogue and friendship and collegial relationships in this moment. So if you haven't laid the groundwork, that person will probably not trust you enough to share that. So make sure that you are kind of taking the temperature of the group or the person when you're engaging with them. And then, you know, you're going to like this, Charlene. Uh, I'm like, um, get engaged. Find out what your organization is doing to help educate you. Get on one of those courageous conversation WebEx meetings or whatever platform you're using. If and when we go back to normal work, if you've never been to an ERG meeting um, for any population, it seems like that would be a natural thing to do to show your support, get educated, build relationships, build connections. Um, if you're not actively mentoring, coaching, being a sponsor for someone who's different than you, whatever that looks like, that's a missed opportunity. You're, the bank has uh, has built-in programs to help you become uh, a mentor, a coach. Um, you can do that formally or informally. And then I think what I was saying earlier, Charlene, is that nothing really can replace me learning more about the big issues that are so hard to tackle. They're so hard even to understand sometimes. But I, I only, I've only been recommending two things lately. I already gave you the documentary that I'm telling everybody I know to watch. It's 90 minutes long. It's brilliant, and it draws the line from slavery, emancipation, all the way through the monetization of, of prisons in the United States, the privatization, and the fact that prisons are now money making, big money making machines. There's a direct line of how that evolved. It didn't just happen 
it happened because of the roots of the tree. The roots just kept growing up into the tree. And now we have mass incarceration as a, another systemic injustice. And then the other, um, there's so many books that everyone's been recommending. But for me and my friends and my people who look like me, it's Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. And I, I got it on Audible so I can listen to it. And again, you know what I do for a living. I have to stop. I've finished it now, but I have to stop after every single chapter and pause and wait a couple days before I go to the next chapter. And it's, of course, it's the name of the book. I'm a little fragile. I feel, I feel frustrated. I feel angry. I feel guilty. I, I feel every range. I feel powerless. I feel all these feelings from that book. And yet, if we don't have the courage to dive into those feelings, nothing will ever change. And white folks are, you know, we have, we have a bigger level of responsibility to be allies and to be change agents. Um, and so they, that, the, the, that, that would be my short list. Wow, Scott, that is phenomenal. Um, you've touched on a variety of different uh, topics. What I, what I heard you say is we need to be more vulnerable. Um, we, we need to raise our level of awareness through education and find ways to hold ourselves accountable through engagement with our BRGs uh, um, and our teams. This has been some really great, great dialogue, Scott. Thank you so much for engaging in conversation with me once again. I've loved chatting with you and, and just um, sharing, sharing what I can to be supportive of everything you're doing at the bank. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Scott and Charlene and learned something new that you can take with you as you lead your teams inclusively. Join us for future episodes where we'll share more insights on the topic. For show notes or for additional information, please visit us at truestleadershipinstitute.com. Leadership Amplitude is a podcast production of Truest Leadership Institute. All rights reserved.